Carrot pulled her aside as a couple of dwarfs approached the door purposefully. But it's long gone, she murmured as two more dwarfs came up behind the first two. The scents, twelve hours old at least. What are they doing? said Carrot, half to himself. The two new dwarfs were covered from head to toe in leather, like Ardent, but wore chainmail over the top of it. Their helmets were quite unadorned, but covered the whole face and head, with only a slit for the eyes. Each dwarf carried a large black pack on his back, and held a lance in front of him. Oh, no, said Carrot. Surely not here. At a word of command, the door was swung open, revealing only darkness beyond. The lances spat flame, long yellow tongues of it, and the black dwarfs walked slowly along behind them. Smoke, heavy and greasy, filled the air. Angua fainted. Darkness. Sam Vimes struggled up the hill, tired to the bone. It was warm, warmer than he'd expected. Sweat stung his eyes, water splashed under his feet and made his boots slip. And ahead, up the slope, a child was screaming. He knew he was shouting. He would hear the breath wheezing in his throat, could feel his lips moving, but he couldn't hear the words he was reciting over and over again. The darkness felt like cold ink. Tendrils of it dragged at his mind and his body, slowing him down, dragging him back. And now they came at him with flames. Vimes blinked and found himself staring at the fireplace. The flames flicked peacefully. There was the swish of a dress as Sybil came back into the room, sat down and picked up her darning. He watched her dully. She was darning his socks. They had maids in this place, and she darned his socks. It wasn't as if they didn't have so much money that he could have a new pair of socks every day. But she'd picked up the idea that it was a wifely duty, and so she did it. It was comforting in a strange sort of way. It was only a shame that she wasn't, in fact, any good at mending holes. So Sam ended up with sock heels that were huge welts of crisscrossing wool. He wore them anyway, and never mentioned it. A weapon that fires flame, he said slowly. Yes, sir, said Carrot. Dwarfs have weapons that fire flame. The deep downers use them to explode pockets of mine gas, said Carrot. I never expected to see them here. It's a weapon if some bastard pointed at me, said Vimes. How much gas did they expect to find in Ankh-Morpork? Sir? Even a river catches fire on a hot summer. Okay, okay, I'll grant you that, Vimes conceded unwillingly. Make sure the word gets out, will you? Anyone seen above ground with one of those things will shoot first, and there will be no point in asking questions afterwards. Good grief, that's all we need. Have you got anything more to tell me, Captain? Well, afterwards we did get to see Ham Crusher's body, said Carrot. What can I say? On his wrist... The draught that identifies him, and his skin was pale. There was a terrible wound on the back of his head. They say it's Ham Crusher. I can't prove it. What I can say is that he didn't die where they said he did, or when they said he did. Why? said Vimes. Blood, sir, said Sally. There should have been blood everywhere. I looked at the wound. What that club hit over the head was already a corpse, and he wasn't killed in that tunnel. Vimes took several slow breaths. There was so much bad stuff here, you needed to take it one horror at a time. I'm worried, Captain, he said. Do you know why? It's because I've got a feeling that very soon I'm going to be asked to confirm that there's evidence that a troll did the deed, which, my friend, will be like announcing the outbreak of war. You did ask us to investigate, sir, said Carrot. Yes, but I didn't expect you to come back with a wrong result. The old thing stinks. That clay from Quarry Lane was planted, wasn't it? It must have been... 
Trolls don't clean their feet much, but walking mud all the way, not a chance. And they don't leave their clubs behind either, growled Vimes. So it's a set-up, right? But it turns out there really was a troll. Was Angua sure? Positive, sir, said Carrot. We've always trusted her nose before. Sorry, sir, she had to go and get some fresh air. She was straining her senses as it was, and she got a lungful of that smoke. I can imagine, said Vimes. Hell's bells, he thought. We were right on the point where I could tell Veterinari that it looked like some kind of half-baked inside job, fake to look as though a troll did it, and then we find out there was a troll. <laughs> so much for relying on the evidence. Sally coughed politely. Ardent was shocked and frightened when the captain found the skull, sir, she said. It wasn't an act, I'm certain of it. He was near collapse with terror. So was Helm clever the whole time. Thank you for that, Lance Constable, said Vimes gravely. I suspect I shall feel the same way when I go out there with a megaphone and shout, Hello, boys, welcome to the replay of Coombe Valley. Hey, let's hold it right here in the city. I don't think you should actually put it like that, sir, said Carrot. Well, yes, I'll probably try to be a bit more subtle since you mention it, said Vimes. And it'd be at least the sixteenth battle referred to as Coombe Valley, Carrot went on, or seventeen if you include the one in Villainous Pass, which was more of a fracas. Only three of them were in the original Coombe Valley, the one immortalised in Rascal's painting. It's said to be quite accurate. Of course, it took him years. An amazing work, said Sybil, not looking up from her darning. It used to belong to my family before we gave it to the museum, you know. Isn't progress a wonderful thing, Captain, said Vimes, pouring as much sarcasm into his tone as possible, since Carrot was so bad at recognising it. When we have our Coombe Valley, our friend Otto will be able to take a colour iconograph of it in a fraction of a second. Wonderful! It's been a long time since this city was last burned to the ground. He ought to be springing into action. Once upon a time he would have done. But now perhaps he should take these precious moments to work out what he should do before he sprang. Vimes tried to think. Don't think of it all as one big bucket of snakes. Think of it as one snake at a time. Try to sort it out. Now, what needs to be done first? Everything. All right, try a different approach. What are these mine signs all about? he said. That helm clever sort of drew one at me. I saw one on the wall too, and you drew one. The following dark, said Carrot. Yes, it was scrawled all over the place. What does it mean? Dread, sir, said Carrot earnestly. A warning of terrible things to come. Well, if one of those little sods so much as surfaces with one of those flame weapons in his hand, that will be true. But you mean they scrawl it on walls? Carrot nodded. You have to understand about a dwarf mine, sir. It's a kind of emotional hothouse, was how Vimes understood it, although no dwarf would ever describe it that way. Humans would have gone insane living like that, cramped together, no real privacy, no real silence, seeing the same faces every day for years on end, and since there were a lot of pointy weapons around, it would only be a matter of time before the ceilings dripped blood. Dwarfs didn't go mad. They stayed thoughtful and sombre and keen on their job but they scrawled mine sign. It was like an unofficial ballot, voting by graffiti, showing your views on what was going on. In the confines of a mine, any problem was everyone's problem. Stress leapt from dwarf to dwarf like lightning. The signs grounded it. They were an outlet, a release, a way of showing what you felt without challenging anyone, because of all the pointy weapons. The following dark. We await what follows with dread. Another translation might mean, in effect, repent, ye sinners. There are hundreds of runes for darkness, 
said Carrot. Some of them are part of ordinary dwarfish, of course, like the long dark. There's plenty like that, but some are, uh, Mystical, Vimes suggested. Unbelievably mystical, sir. There's books and books about them. And the way dwarfs think about books and words and runes, well, you wouldn't believe it, sir. We, uh, they, think the world was written, sir. All words have enormous power. Destroying a book is worse than murder to a deep downer. I've rather gathered that, said Blackboard Monitor Vimes. Some deep downers believe that the dark signs are real, Carrot went on. Well, if you can see the writing on the wall, Vimes began. Real like alive, sir, said Carrot earnestly. Like they exist somewhere down in the dark under the world, and they cause themselves to be written. There's the waiting dark, that's the dark that fills a new hole. The closing dark. I don't know about that one, but there's an opening dark too. The breathing dark, that's rare. The calling dark, very dangerous. The speaking dark, the catching dark. The secrets dark, I've seen that. They're all fine, but the following dark is a very bad sign. I used to hear the older dwarfs talking about that. They said it could make lamps go out, and much worse things. When people start drawing that sign, things have got very bad. This is all very interesting, but... Everyone in the mine is nervous as heck, sir. Tense like wires. Angua said she could smell it, but so could I, sir. I grew up in a mine. When something is wrong, everyone catches it. On days like that, sir, my father used to stop all mining operations. You get too many accidents. Frankly, sir, the dwarfs are mad with worry. The following dark signs are everywhere. It's probably the miners they've hired since they came here. They feel that something is very wrong, but the only thing they can do about it is sign. Well, their top grag has been killed. I can feel the atmosphere in the mine, sir. Any dwarf can. And that one is rancid with fear and dread and horrible confusion. And there's worse things in the deeps than the following dark. Vimes had a momentary vision of vengeful darkness rising through caves like a tide, faster than a man could run. Which was stupid. You couldn't see dark. Hold on, though. Sometimes you could. Back in the old days, when he was on nights all the time and no one was rich enough for lanterns, he'd known all the shades of darkness. And sometimes you got darkness so thick that you almost felt you had to push your way through it. Those were nights when horses were skittish and dogs whined, and down in the slaughterhouse district the animals broke out of their pens. They were inexplicable, just like those nights that were quite light and silvery even though there was no moon in the sky. He'd learned then not to use his little lantern. Light only ruined your vision, it blinded you. You stared into the dark until it blinked. You stared it down. Captain, I'm getting a bit lost here, said Vimes. I didn't grow up in a mine. Are these signs drawn up because dwarfs think bad things are going to happen and want to ward them off, or think the mine deserves the bad things happening, or because they want the bad things to happen? Can be all three at once, said Carrot, wincing. It can get really intense when a mine goes bad. Oh, good grief! Oh, it can be awful, sir, believe me. But no one would ever draw the worst of the signs and want it to happen. Just the drawing wouldn't be enough anyway. You have to want it to happen with your very last breath. And which one is that? Oh, you don't want to know, sir. No, I did ask, said Vimes. No, you really don't want to know, sir, really. Vimes was about to start yelling, but he stopped to think for a moment. Actually, no, I don't think I do, he agreed. This is all about hysteria and mysticism. It's just weird folklore. Dwarfs believe it? I don't. So, how did you get the worms to form that sign? Easy, sir. You just smear the wall with a piece of meat. That's a feast for worms. I wanted to shake Ardent up a bit, make him nervous like you taught me. 
I wanted to show him I knew about signs. I am a dwarf after all. Captain, this is probably not the time to break it to you, but— Oh, I know people laugh, sir. A six-foot dwarf? But being a human just means being born to human parents. That's easy. Being a dwarf doesn't mean being born to dwarfs, although it's a good start. It doesn't mean being short, either. It's about certain things you do. Certain ceremonies. I've done them. So I'm a human and a dwarf. The deep downers find it a bit hard to deal with that. It's mystic again, is it? said Vimes wearily. Oh, yes, sir. Carrot coughed. Vimes recognized that particular cough. It meant that bad news was on the captain's mind, and he was wondering how to shape it to fit the available, not going totally postal space in Vimes's head. Out with it, captain. Eh, uh, this little chap turned up, said Carrot, opening his hand. The gooseberry imp sat up. I ran all the way here, insert name here, it said proudly. We spotted it jogging along the gutter, said Carrot. It wasn't hard to see, glowing pale green like that. Vimes pulled the gooseberry box out of his pocket and put it on the floor. The imp climbed inside. Oh, that feels so good, it said. Don't talk to me about rats and cats. They chased you, but you're a magical creature, aren't you? said Vimes. They don't know that, said the imp. Now, what was it? Oh, yes. You asked me about night soil removal. Over the past three months, the extra honey wagon load has averaged forty tons a night. Forty tons? That'd fill a big room. Why didn't we know about it? You did, insert name here, said the imp proudly. But they were leaving from every gate, you see, and probably no guard ever spotted more than one or two extra carts. Yeah, but they turned in reports every night. Why didn't we spot it? There was an awkward pause. The imp coughed. Um, no one read the reports, insert name here. They appear to be what we in the trade call write-only documents. Wasn't anyone supposed to be reading them? Vimes demanded. There was another thundering silence. I rather think you were, dear, said Sybil, paying attention to her darning. But I'm in charge, Vimes protested. Yes, dear, that's the point, really. But I can't spend all my time shuffling bits of paper. Then get someone else to do it, dear, said Sybil. Can I do that? said Vimes. Yes, sir, said Carrot. You're in charge. Vimes looked at the imp, which gave him a willing grin. Can you go through all of my intray, floor, murmured Sybil, and tell me what's important? Happy to, insert name here. Only one question, insert name here. What is important? Well, the fact that the honey wagons are carting a whole lot more muck out of the city is pretty damn important, don't you think? I wouldn't know, insert name here, said the imp. I do not, in fact, think as such. But I surmise that, if I had drawn your attention to such a fact a month ago, you would have told me to stick my head up a duck's bottom. That's true, said Vimes, nodding. I probably would. Captain Carrot. Sir, said Carrot, sitting up straight. What's the situation on the street? Well, troll gangs have been wandering around the city all day, dwarfs too. Now a lot of the dwarfs are hanging around in the square, sir, and a fair number of trolls are congregating in the plaza of broken moons. How many are we talking about here? said Vimes. About a thousand, all told. They've been drinking, of course. Just in the mood for a fight, then. Yes, sir. Just drunk enough to be stupid, but too sober to fall over, said Carrot. Interesting observation, Captain, said Vimes thoughtfully. Yes, sir. The word is that they'll start at nine. Arrangements have been made, I gather. Then I think before it gets dark there should be a load of coppers in the cham, right between them, don't you? said Vimes. Get the word out to the watch houses. I've done that, sir, said Carrot, and get some barricades sorted out. All arranged, sir. And call out the specials? I put the word out an hour ago, sir. Vimes hesitated. I've got to be there, Captain. We should have enough men, sir, said Carrot. 
"'But you won't have enough commander,' said Vimes. "'If Veterinary hauls me over the coals tomorrow because there was a major riot in the city centre, I don't want to tell him I was having a quiet evening at home.' He turned to his wife. "'Sorry, Sybil.' Lady Sybil sighed. "'I think I shall have to have a word with Havelock about the hours he makes you keep,' she said. "'It's not doing you any good, you know.' "'It's a job, dear. Sorry.' "'It's just as well I got the cook to make up a flask of soup, then.' "'You did?' "'Of course. I know you, Sam. And there are some sandwiches in the bag. Captain Carrot, you are to make sure he eats the apple and the banana. Dr. Lorne says he must eat at least five pieces of fruit or vegetables every day.' Vimes stared woodenly at Carrot and Sally, trying to project the warning that the first officer to crack a smile or even mention this to anyone ever, ever, ever would have a very hard time of it indeed. "'And incidentally, tomato ketchup is not a vegetable,' Sybil added. "'Not even the dried stuff round the top of the bottle. "'Well, what are you all waiting around for?' "'There's something I didn't want to mention in front of her ladyship,' said Carrot as they hurried down to the yard. "'Ah, uh, hitherto is dead, sir.' Who's hitherto? Lance Constable Horace hitherto, sir, got walloped on the back of the head last night. When we were at that meeting, when there was that uh, um, disturbance, got sent to the free hospital. Oh, gods, said Vimes. It seems like a week ago. He'd only been with us a couple of months. They said at the hospital his brain died, sir. I'm sure they did their best. Did we do ours? Vimes wondered. But it was a bloody melee, and the cobblestone came out of nowhere. Could have hit me. Could have hit Carrot. Hit the kid instead. What'll I tell his parents? Killed in the line of duty? But his duty shouldn't have been to stop one lot of idiot citizens murdering another lot of idiot citizens. It's all got out of hand. There aren't enough of us, and now there's a few less. I'll go and see his mum and dad tomorrow, he began, and sluggish memories shifted at last. Does... didn't he have a brother in the watch? Yes, sir, said Carrot. Lance Constable Hector hitherto, sir. They joined together. He's down at Chitling Street. Get hold of his sergeant and tell him Hector is not allowed on the street tonight, OK? I want him introduced to the joys of filing, in a cellar, if possible, and wearing a very thick helmet. I understand, sir, said Carrot. How's Angua? I think she'll be fine after having a lie down, sir. The mine really got to her. I'm really, really sorry about that, Sally began. Not your fault, Lance Constable. Sally, said Vimes. It was mine. I know about the vampire and werewolf thing, but I needed you both to be down there. Just one of those decisions, OK? I suggest you take the evening off. No, that's an order. You've done very well in your first day. Off you go. Get your head down. Or whatever. They watched her out of sight before continuing down the street. She is very good, sir, said Carrot. She picks things up fast. Yes, very fast. I can see she's going to be useful, said Vimes thoughtfully. Doesn't that strike you as odd, Captain? Up she pops, just when we need her. She has been here for a couple of months, though, said Carrot, and the League vouches for her. A couple of months is about the same time as Hamcrush has been here, too, said Vimes. And if you wanted to find things out, we're not a bad outfit to join. We're official prodnoses. Sir, you don't think— Oh, I'm sure she's a black ribboner, but I don't think a vampire comes all the way from Oberwald to play the cello. Still, as you say, she does a good job. Vimes stared at nothing for a moment, and then said thoughtfully, "'Doesn't one of our specials work for the Clax Company?' "'That'd be Andy Hancock, sir,' said Carrot. "'Oh, gods, you mean two swords? That's him, sir. Very keen lad. "'Yeah, I saw the dockets. Normally a training dummy lasts for months, Captain. You're not supposed to chop through three in half an hour.' "'He'll be down at the yard now, sir. Do you want a word with him?' "'No. 
You have a word with him. Vimes lowered his voice. So did Carrot. There was whispering. Then Carrot said, Is that strictly legal, sir? I don't see why not. Let's find out, shall we? We haven't had this little conversation, Captain. Understood, sir. Ye gods, it was so much better when there was just four of us up against that bloody great dragon, Vimes thought as they walked on. Of course, we nearly got burned alive a few times, but at least it wasn't complicated. It was a damn great dragon. You could see it coming. It didn't get political on you. It had started to rain a fine, invasive rain by the time they arrived at Pseudopolis Yard. Vimes had, with extreme reluctance, to hand it to Carrot. He certainly could organise. The place was bustling. Wagon-loads of yellow and black barricades were being trundled out of the old lemonade factory. Watchmen were pouring in from every street. "'I really pushed the boat out on this one, sir,' said Carrot. "'I thought it was important.' "'Well done, Captain,' said Vimes, as they stood like islands in the flood. "'But I think there is a little matter of forward planning you may have overlooked.' "'Really, sir? I thought I've covered everything,' said Carrot, looking puzzled. Vimes slapped him on the back. "'Probably not this one,' he said, and added, but only to himself, "'because you, Captain, are not a bastard.' Bewildered and aimless, the troll wanders through the world. Brick's head really gonged. He didn't want to be doing this, but he'd fallen into bad company. He often fell into bad company, he reflected, although sometimes he had to look all day to find it, because Brick was a loser's loser. A troll without a clan or a gang, and who is considered thick even by other trolls, has to take any bad company he can find. In this case, he'd met totally slag and hardcore and big marble, and it had been easier to fall in with them than decide not to, and Dave met up with more trolls, and now... Look at it like this, he thought as he trudged along, singing gang songs a bit behind the beat, because he didn't know the words. All right, being in the middle of this mob of trolls ain't lying low, that is a fact. But Totally Slag had said the word was that the watch was also after the troll who'd been down that mine, right? And if you think about it, the best place to hide a troll, right, is a big bunch of trolls, because the watch would be poking around in the cellars where the real mean trolls hung out, they wouldn't be looking here, and if they did, and were putting their finger on him, then all these brother trolls would help him out. He wasn't too certain about that last bit in his heart of hearts. His possibly negative IQ, complete absence of street cred, and, above all, his permanent inclination to snort, suck, swallow, or bite anything that promised to make his brain sparkle, meant that he had been turned down even by the Tenth Egg Street Can't-Think-of-A-Name gang, rumoured to be so dense that one of their members was a lump of concrete on a piece of string. No, it would be hard to imagine any troll caring much what happened to Brick, but right now they were brothers, and the only game in town. He nudged the skull-necklaced, graffiti-ornamented, lichen-covered, huge club-dragging troll marching stoically alongside him. "'Respect, bro,' he said. "'Won't you go and gug yourself, Brick, you little piece of coprolite?' the troll muttered. "'Right off!' said Brick cheerfully. The main office was packed, but Vimes fought his way through by shoving and shouting until he reached the duty desk which was under siege. "'It looks worse than it is, sir!' shouted Cheery over the din. "'Detritus and Constable Blue John are in the cham right now, along with all three Golem officers. We've started getting the line in place. Both the mobs are too busy getting themselves worked up.' "'Good work, Sergeant!' Cheery leaned down and lowered her voice. Vimes had to hang on to the tall desk to stop himself being carried away by the throng. "'Fred Corlon's signing up the specials in the old lemonade factory, sir, and Mr. De Word of the Times is looking for you.' 
"'Sorry, Sergeant, didn't catch that last bit,' said Vimes loudly. "'The lemonade factory, right? Okay.' He turned around and almost tripped over Mr. A. E. Pessimal, who was holding a neat clipboard. Now, "'Ah, Your Grace, there's just a few small matters I'd like to discuss with you,' said the gleaming little man. Vimes's mouth dropped open. "'And you think this is a good time, do you?' he managed, as he was jostled by an officer carrying a bundle of swords. Uh, "'Well, yes.' "'I've turned up a number of little financial and procedural problems,' said A. E. Passimal calmly, "'and I think it's vitally important that I understand exactly what—' Vimes, grinning horribly, grabbed him by the shoulder. "'Yes, right, absolutely,' he shouted. "'My dear Mr. Pessimal, what have I been thinking of? You should understand. Come with me, please.' He half-dragged the bewildered man out through the back door, lifted him out of the way of a trundling cart as he negotiated the crowded yard, and hustled him into the old factory yard, where the specials were being kitted up. Technically, they were the citizens' militia, but, as Fred Colon had remarked, it was better to have them in here pissing themselves than outside pissing on you. The special constables were men, mostly, who could be coppers in times of dire need, but were generally disqualified from formal watch membership by reason of shape, profession age, or sometimes brain. A lot of the professionals didn't like them, but Vimes had lately taken the view that when push came to shove, it was better to have your fellow citizens shoving alongside you, and, that being the case, you might as well teach them how to hold a sword right, lest the arm they clumsily removed was yours. Vimes dragged A. E. Pessimal through the press of bodies until he found Fred Colon, who was handing out one-size-doesn't-fit-anybody helmets. "'New man for you, Fred,' he said loudly. "'Mr. A. E. Pessimal. A. E., if he ever makes friends. "'He's the government inspector. "'Kid him out, full fig, and don't forget the riot shield. "'A. E. here wants to understand Copperin, "'so he's kindly volunteered to be an acting constable "'on the barricades with us.' "'Over the top of A. E. Pessimal's head, "'he gave Fred a big wink. "'Ooh, er, right,' said Fred, "'and his face, in the flickering light of the flares, "'acquired the innocent smile of one about to make someone's life a little pot of bubbling dread. He leaned over the trestle table. "'Know how to use a sword, acting Constable Pessimal,' he said, and dropped a helmet on the man's head, where it spun. Uh, "'Well, I, I didn't exactly,' the inspector began, as a very elderly sword was shoved across the planks, followed by a heavy truncheon. "'A shield, then? Any good with a shield?' said Fred, pushing a large such item after the sword. "'Actually, I didn't mean,' said A. E. Pessimal, trying to hold both the sword and the truncheon, and dropping both, and then the sword and the truncheon and the shield, and dropping all three. "'Any good at running a hundred yards in ten seconds? In this,' Fred went on. A ragged chain-mail coat dropped slowly off the table like a parcel of snakes, and landed on A. E. Pessimal's bright little shoes. "'I, I don't think—standing still and going to the toilet really, really quickly,' said Fred. "'Oh, well, you'll learn soon enough.' Vimes turned the man around, picked up thirty-five pounds of rust-eaten chain-mail, and dropped it into his arms, causing A. E. Pessimal to bend double. "'I'll introduce you to some of the citizens who'll be fighting alongside you tonight, shall I?' he said, as the little man hobbled after him. "'This is Willikins, my butler. No sharpened pennies in your cap tonight, Willikins?' "'No, sir,' said Willikins, staring at the struggling A. E. Pessimal. "'Glad to hear it.' "'This is Acting Constable Pessimal, Willikins,' Vimes winked. "'Honoured to meet you, Acting Constable, sir,' said Willikins gravely. "'Now that sir is with us, I am sure the miscreants will just melt away. 
Has, sir, by any chance gone, sir, on one with a troll before? No, a little advice, sir. The important thing is to get in front of them and dodge the first blow. They always leave themselves open, and sir may then step smartly forward and select sir's target of choice. Uh, what if, if I'm not in front of one when it tries to hit me? A. E. Pessimal said, hypnotised by the description and dropping the sword again. What if it is, in fact, behind me? Ah, well, I'm afraid that in that case, sir, has to go back and start all over again, sir. And, uh, how do I do that? Being born is traditionally the first step, sir, said Willikins, shaking his head. Vimes gave him a nod, and moved the trembling pessimal on through the chattering crowd, while the fine rain fell, and the mists rose, and the torches flickered. "'Good evening, sir,' said a cheerful voice, and there, yes, was Special Constable Hancock, an amiable bearded man with an amiable smile, and more cutlery about his person than was good for Vimes's mental health. That was the trouble with some of the specials. They really got into it. They bought their own gear, and it was always better than watch issue. Some of them clanged even more than dwarfs with patent handcuffs and complicated nightsticks and comfy padded helmets and pencils that wrote underwater, and, in the case of Special Constable Hancock, two curved Agatean swords strapped across his back. Those who dared to venture into the training yard when he was using them said they looked rather impressive. Vimes had heard that an Agatean ninja could give a fly a shave and a haircut in mid-flight, but this didn't make him feel any better. "'Oh, uh, hello, Andy,' he said. "'I think—' "'Captain Carrots had a word with me,' said Special Constable Hancock, giving him a huge wink. "'I'll see to it.' "'Oh, good,' said Vimes, horribly aware that he'd put himself in a tricky position vis-à-vis, -vis, suggesting that maybe one sword might be enough. The man was going to do them a favour, after all. "'And uh, you'll be up against the trolls, at least, to start with,' he said. "'Just remember that there's our people around you, will you? Remember Special Constable Piggle, eh?' "'But, in fairness, it was a clean cut, sir,' said Hancock. Hancock. "'Igor said he'd never done such an easy reattachment.' "'Nevertheless, it's truncheons only tonight, Andy, unless I give any other order, OK?' "'Understood, Commander Vimes. I've just got a new truncheon, as a matter of fact.' Some sixth sense made Vimes say, "'Oh, really? May I see?' "'Right here, sir.' Hancock pulled out what looked to Vimes like two truncheons joined together with a length of chain. They're Agatean numbnuts, sir. No sharp edges at all. Vimes gave them an experimental swing and hit his own elbow. He handed them back quickly. Rather you than me, lad. Still, I suppose they'll make a troll stop and think. Mr. Pessimal was staring in horror, not least because Wayward Wood had just missed him. Oh, this is Mr. Pessimal, Andy, said Vimes. He's finding out how we do things. Mr. Hancock is one of our keenest special constables, Mr. Pessimal. "'Nice to meet you, Mr. Pessimal,' said Hancock. "'If you need any weapons, catalogues, I'm your man.' Vimes moved on quickly, just in case the man drew those swords again and run up against slightly more reassuring figure. "'And here we have Mr. Boggis,' he said. "'Good to see you. Mr. Boggis is President of the Guild of Thieves, Mr. Pessimal.' Mr. Boggis saluted proudly. He had accepted a chainmail jacket from Fred, but no power in the world would have parted him from his brown bowler hat. Any power nevertheless inclined to try would in any case have to contend with the narrow-eyed, stony-jawed men on either side of him, who had eschewed any weapons or armour. One of them was cleaning his fingernails with a cutthroat razor. In a strange but very definite way they looked much more dangerous even than Special Constable Hancock.
And also, Vinnie Noe is Lud, and Harry can't remember his nickname Jones, I see, Vimes went on. You brought your bodyguards, Mr. Boggis. Vinnie and Harry like to get out in the fresh air, Mr. Vimes, said Mr. Boggis. And I see you've got your own bodyguard, then. He beamed down on A.E. Pessimal and then grinned at Vimes. You have to watch them little bantam fighters, Mr. Vimes. They can have the nose off your face quicker and wink. I can tell a killing cove when I see one, eh? Best of luck to you, Mr. Pessimal. Vimes bustled the astonished man away before Mr. Boggis was killed on the spot by the god of overacting, and almost walked into the one special who could be guaranteed not to talk too much. And here, Mr. Pessimal, here we have the university librarian, he said. Good man in a melee, eh? But, uh, but, but that's not a man. That's an orangutan, Pongo Pongo, native of Bang Bang Duck and nearby islands. Book, said the librarian, patting A.E. Pessimal on the head and handing him a banana skin. Well done, A.E., said Vimes. Not many people get that right. And so Vimes dragged the inspector back through the crowd of damp, armoured men, introducing him right and left. Then he pushed him into a corner and, to faint stunned protestations, dragged the mail shirt over his head. You stick close behind me, Mr. Pessimal, he said, as the man tried to move. It could get a bit sticky later on. The trolls are up in the plaza and the dwarves are down in the square, and both of them are drinking enough courage to have a good scrap. That's why we'll be lining up in the cham, right between them, the thin brown streak. <laughs> the dwarfs favour battle axes, the trolls go in for clubs. Our weapon of first resort will be our truncheons, and our weapon of last resort is our feet. That is to say, we'll run like hell. But, 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 but you have swords, A.E. Pessimal managed. We have swords, acting constable. Yes, that is a fact, but poking holes in citizens is watch brutality, and we don't want any of that now, do we? Let's get going. I wouldn't like you to miss anything. He harried the man again, out into the street, and the stream of watchmen heading for the cham. Apart from them, the street was empty. Ankh-Morpork people had an instinct for staying indoors when there were too many battle-axes and spiky clubs out there. The cham was simply a very, very wide road, once intended for ceremonial parades, a hangover from the days when the city had much to be ceremonious about. Drizzle filled it now, and did not do much more than wet the pavements and reflect the light of the flares along the barricades. Barricades, well, that's what they were called on the watch inventory. Ha! <laughs> Lengths of wood painted in black and yellow stripes and mounted on trestles were not barricades, not to anyone who'd been behind a real one, which was built of rubbish and furniture and barrels and fear and bowel-knotting defiance. No, these simple things were the physical symbol of an idea. It was a line in the sand— it said, thus far and no further. It said, this is where the law is. Step over this line and you've gone beyond the law. Step over this line with your massive axes and huge morning stars and heavy, heavy spiky clubs. And we, we happy few who stand here with our wooden truncheons, we'll, we'll, well, you just better not step over the line, OK? The yellow and black edges of the law had been set about twelve feet apart giving plenty of room for two lines of watchmen standing back to back, facing outwards. Vimes dragged Mr. Pessimal into the centre of the cham between the lines and let him go. Any questions, he said, as latecomers jostled past them to take up their positions. The little man stared toward the distant plaza, where the trolls had lit a big fire, and then turned to look the other way at the square, where the dwarfs had lit several fires. There was the sound of singing. Oh, yes, we'll get the singing first. At this point it's all about... Getting the blood pounding, you see, Vimes added helpfully. Songs about heroes, great victories, killing your enemies and drinking out of their warm skulls, that sort of thing. And th then uh, they'll attack us, said A.E. Pessimal. 
Well, not as such, Vimes conceded. They'll try to attack the other bunch, and we're in the way. They won't go around, perhaps, said A.E. Pessimal, hopefully. I doubt it. They won't be in the mood for narrow alleys. They'll be thinking in straight lines. Charge and yell, they'll say. That's the way. Ah, there's the university over there, said A.E. Pessimal, as if noticing the huge bulk of unseen university for the very first time. Surely, though, the wizards could magic their weapons out of their hands, possibly leaving them with all their fingers, magic them into the cells, turn them all into ferrets. And what then, Mr. Pessimal? Vimes lit a cigar, cupping the match in his hand so that the flame made his face glow briefly. Shall we follow where magic leads us? Wave a wand, eh, to find out who's guilty, and what of? Magic men good? The innocent would have nothing to fear, do you think? I wouldn't bet tuppence, Mr. Pessimal. Magic's a little bit alive, a little bit tricky. Just when you think you've got it by the throat, it bites you in the arse. No magic in my watch, Mr. Pessimal. We use good, old-fashioned policing. But there are lots of them, Commander. About a thousand altogether, I reckon, said Vimes placidly. Plus, who knows how many more out there will wail in if we let it get out of hand? This is just the hotheads and the gangs right now. But, 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 can't you just, add leave them to it? No, Mr. Pessimal, because that'd be what we in the watch call complete and utter bloody chaos, and it will not stop, and it will get bigger very quickly. We have to finish it right now, so... There was a thud from the direction of the plaza. It was loud enough to echo around the buildings. What was that? A.E. Pessimal said, looking around hurriedly. Oh, that was to be expected, said Vimes. Pessimal relaxed very slightly. It was? Yeah, it's the Gahanka, the troll war beat, said Vimes. They say that within ten minutes of hearing it, you're dead. Behind Pessimal, detritus grinned, the torchlight turning his diamond teeth into rubies. Is that true? I shouldn't think so, said Vimes. And now, please excuse me for a while, acting Constable Pessimal. I'll leave you in the good hands of Sergeant Detritus while I talk to my men. Stiffen their sinews, that sort of thing. He moved away quickly. He told himself he shouldn't be doing this to the inspector, who was just a clerk in the wrong place, and probably wasn't a bad man. The trouble was, the trolls up in the plaza probably weren't bad trolls, and the dwarfs down in the square probably weren't bad dwarfs either. People who probably weren't bad could kill you. The troll beat boomed around the city as Vimes reached Fred Colon. "'I see they're giving us the old Gahanka, then, Mr. Vimes,' said the sergeant with nervous cheerfulness. "'Yep. They'll be charging pretty soon, I expect.' Vimes screwed up his eyes, trying to see figures around the distant glow. Trolls didn't charge fast, but when they charged it was like a wall getting nearer. Extending a hand and shouting, Halt! in a firm, authoritative voice, probably would not be sufficient. "'You thinking about another barricade, Mr. Vimes?' said Fred. "'Hm?' said Vimes, dismissing the mental picture of himself laminated to the street. "'Barricades, sir,' Colon prompted. "'More than thirty years ago.' Vimes gave a curt nod. Oh, yes, he remembered the glorious revolution. It hadn't really been a revolution, and it had been glorious only if you thought an early grave was glorious. Men had died there, too, because of other men who, bar one or two, probably weren't bad. Yes, he said, and it seems like only yesterday. Every day, he thought, it seems like only yesterday. Remember old Sergeant Keel? He pulled off a few tricks that night. Sergeant Colon's voice, like A.E. Pessimal's, had a curiously hopeful tone. Vimes nodded. "'I suppose you wouldn't have one or two up your sleeve too, sir?' Fred went on, the hope now naked and unashamed. "'You know me, Fred. Always willing to learn,' said Vimes vaguely. 
He strolled on, nodding to watchmen he knew, slapping others on the back, and trying not to get trapped in anyone's gaze. Every face was in some way a reflection of the face of Fred Colon. He could practically see their thoughts, while the thud of five hundred clubs hitting the stone in unison banged on the eardrums like a hammer. You have got it sorted, haven't you, Mr. Vimes? We're not really going to be stuck here like the meat in a sandwich, right? It's a trick, yes? It is a trick, isn't it, sir? I hope it is, Vimes thought. But one way or another, the watch has to be here. That's the bloody truth of it. Something had changed in the rhythm of the Gahanka. You had to be listening, but some of the clubs were hitting the ground just ahead or just after the beat. Ah, he reached Cheery and Carrot, who were staring at the distant fires of the dwarfs. We think we might be getting a result, sir, said Carrot. I damn well hope so. What's happening with the dwarfs? Not so much singing, sir, Cheery reported. Glad to hear it. We could handle them, though, couldn't we, sir, said Carrot. With the golem officers on our side, too, if it came to it? Of course we couldn't, Vimes's mind supplied. Not if they mean it. What we could is die valiantly. I've seen men die valiantly. There's no future in it. I don't want it to come to it, Captain, Vimes stopped. Her deeper shadow had moved among the shadows. What's the password? he said quickly. The shadowy figure, who was cloaked and hooded, hesitated. Pathword? Excuse me, I've got it written down somewhere, it began. Okay, Igor, come on in, said Carrot. How did you know it was me, sir? said Igor, ducking under the barricade. Uh, you're aftershave, said Vimes, winking at the captain. How did it go? Just as you said, sir, said Igor, pushing his hood back. Incidentally, sir, I have scrubbed the slab well, and my cousin Igor is standing by to lend a hand, in case of any little accidents, sir. Thank you for thinking of that, Igor, said Vimes, as if Igor's ever thought of anything else. I hope it won't be needed. He looked up and down the cham. The rain was falling harder now. Just once the copper's friend had turned up when he really needed it. Rain tended to dampen martial enthusiasm. Anyone seen Nobby? he said. A voice from the shadow said, Here, yeah, Mr. Vimes, been here five minutes. Why didn't you sing out then? Couldn't remember the password, sir. Thought I'd wait till I heard Igor say it. Oh, come on in. Did it work? Better than you'd imagine, sir, said Nobby, rain pouring down his cloak. Vimes stood back. OK, lads, then this is it. Carrot and Cheery, you head for the dwarfs. Me and the triters will take the trolls. You know the drill. Lines to advance slowly and no edged weapons. I repeat, no edged weapons. Let's do this like coppers, OK? On the signal. He hurried back up the line of barricades as fast as the stir ran along the ranks of the watchmen. Detritus was waiting stoically. He grunted when Vimes arrived. Clubs have just about stopped, sir, he reported. I heard, Sergeant. Vimes took off his oiled leather cloak and hung it on the barricade. He needed his arms free. By the way, how did it go in Turnagain Lane? he said, stretching his arms. Oh, wonderful, sir, said Detritus happily. Six alchemists and fifty pounds of fresh slide. In and out, quick and sweet, all banged up in a tanty. Didn't know what hit him, eh? said Vimes. Detritus looked mildly offended at this. Oh, no, sir, he said. I made sure they knew I hit them. And then Vimes spotted Mr. Pessimal, still where he had left him, his face a pale disc in the shadows. Well, enough of that game. Maybe the little tit would have learned something, standing here in the rain, waiting to be caught between a couple of screaming mobs. Maybe he'd had time to wonder what it was like to spend your life going through moments like that. A bit harder than pushing paper, eh? If I was you... I'd just wait here, Mr. Pessimal, he said, as kindly as he could manage. 
This might be a bit rough in parts. No, Commander, said A.E. Pessimal, looking up. What? I have been paying attention to what has been said, and intend to face the foe, Commander, said A.E. Pessimal. Now, see here, Mr. Pessimal. Uh, see here, A.E., said Vimes, putting his hand on the little man's shoulder. He stopped. A.E. Pessimal was trembling so much that his chain mail was faintly jingling. Vimes persevered. Look, go on home, eh? This isn't where you belong. He patted the shoulder a few times, totally nonplussed. Commander Vimes, snapped the inspector. Ah, uh, yes. A.E. Pessimal turned up to Vimes a face wetter than the drizzle rightly accounted for. I am an acting constable, am I not? Well, yes, I know I said that, but I did not expect you to take it seriously. I am a serious man, Commander Vimes, and there is no place I would rather be now than here, Acting Constable Pessimal said, his teeth chattering, and no time I'd rather be here than now. Let's do this, shall we? Vimes looked at Detritus, who shrugged his massive shoulders. Something was happening here, in the mind of a little man whose back he could possibly break with one hand. Oh, well, if you say so, he said hopelessly. You heard the inspector, Sergeant Detritus? Let's do this, shall we? The troll nodded, and turned to face the distant troll encampment. He cupped his hands and bellowed a string of trollish, which bounced off the buildings. "'Add something we can all understand, perhaps,' said Vimes, as the echoes died away. A. E. Pessimal stepped forward, taking a deep breath. "'Come on, if you think you're hard enough!' he screamed wildly. Vimes coughed. "'Thank you, Mr. Pessimal,' he said weakly. "'I imagine that should do it.' The moon was somewhere beyond the clouds, but Angua didn't need to see it. Carrots once had a special watch made for her birthday. It was a little moon that turned right around black side and white side every twenty-eight days. It must have cost him a lot of money, and Angua now wore it on her collar, the one item of clothing that she could wear all month round. She couldn't bring herself to tell him she didn't need it. You knew what was happening. It was hard to know much else right now, because she was thinking with her nose. That was the problem with the wolf times, the nose took charge. Currently, Angua was searching the alleys around Treacle Street, spiralling out from the dwarf mine. She prowled onwards in a world of colour, smells overlaid one another, drifting and persisting. The nose was also the only organ that can see backwards in time. She'd already visited the spoil heap on the waste ground. There was the smell of troll there. It had got out that way, but there was no point in following a trail that cold. Hundreds of street trolls wore lichen and skulls these days, but the foul, oily stuff, that was a smell that was clinging to her memory. The little devils must have some other ways in, right? And you had to move the air around in a mine, right? So some trace of that oil would find its ways out along with the air. They probably wouldn't be strong, but she didn't need them to be. A trace of it was all she needed. It would be more than enough. As she padded through the alleys and leapt walls into midnight yards, she kept clenched in her jaws the little leather bag that was a friend to any thinking werewolf, such a creature being defined as one who remembers that your clothes don't magically follow you. The bag held a lightweight silk dress and a large bottle of mouthwash, which Angua considered to be the greatest invention of the last hundred years. She found what she was looking for behind Broadway. It stood out against the familiar organic smells of the city as a tiny black ribbon of stench that left zigzags in the air as breezes and the passage of carts had dragged it this way and that. She began to move with more care. This wasn't an area like Treacle Street. People with money lived here, and they often spent that money on big dogs and disproportionate response signs in their driveways. 
As it was, she heard the rattle of chains and the occasional whine as she slunk along. She hated being attacked by large, ferocious dogs. It always left a mess, and the mouthwash was never strong enough. The thread of stink was floating through the railings of Empirical Crescent, one of the city's great architectural semi-precious gems. It was always hard to find people prepared to live there, however, despite the general desirable nature of the area. Tenants seldom stayed for more than a few months before moving hurriedly, sometimes leaving all their possessions behind. Empirical Crescent was just off Park Lane, in what was generally a high-rent district. The rents would have been higher still were it not for the continued existence of Empirical Crescent itself, which, despite the best efforts of the Ankh-Morpork Historical Preservation Society, had still not been pulled down. This was because it had been built by Burkholt Stutley Johnson, better known to history as Bloody Stupid Johnson, a man who combined in one frail body such enthusiasm, self-delusion, and creative lack of talent that he was, in many respects, one of the great heroes of architecture. Only Bloody Stupid Johnson could have invented the thirteen-inch foot and a triangle with three right angles in it. Only Bloody Stupid Johnson could have twisted common matter through dimensions it was not supposed to go. And only Bloody Stupid Johnson could have done all this by accident. His highly original approach to geometry was responsible for empirical crescent. On the outside, it was a normal terraced crescent of the period, built of honey-coloured stone with the occasional pillar or cherub nailed on. Inside, the front door of number one opened into the back bedroom of number fifteen, the ground-floor front window of number three showed the view appropriate to the second floor of number nine, and smoke from the dining-room fireplace of number two came out of the chimney of number nineteen. She sailed over the railing with silence and ease and landed on all fours on what had once been a gravel path. Residents in the Crescent seldom did much gardening, since even if you planted bulbs you could never be sure whose garden they'd come up in. Angua followed her nose to a patch of rampant thistles. Some moulding bricks in a circle marked what must have been an old well. The oily stink was heavy here, but there was a fresher, far more complex smell that raised the hairs on Angua's neck. There was a vampire down there. Someone had pulled away the weeds and debris, including the inevitable rotting mattress and decomposing armchair. But it was okay to throw your rubbish into the garden, because it might not be your garden you were throwing it into. Sally, what was she doing here? Angua pulled a brick out of the rotted edging and let it drop. Instead of a splash, there was a clear wooden thump. Oh, well. She went back to human to get down. Claws were fine, but some things were better done by monkeys. The sides were, of course, slimy, but so many bricks had fallen out over the years that the descent turned out to be easier than she'd expected. And it was only about sixty feet deep, built in the days when it was widely believed that any water that supported so many little whiskery swimming things must be healthy. There were fresh planks in the bottom. Someone, and surely it could only have been the dwarfs, had broken into the well down here and laid a couple of planks across it. They had dug this far and stopped. Why? Because they'd reached the well? There was dirty water, or water-like liquid, just under the planks. The tunnel was a bit wider here, and dwarfs had been here, she sniffed, a day ago no more. Yes, dwarfs had been here, had fished around, and had then all left at once. They hadn't even bothered to tidy up. She could smell it like a picture. She crept forward, 
the tunnels mapping themselves in her nostrils. They weren't nicely finished like the tunnels Ardent moved in. They were rougher, with lots of zigzags and blind alleys. Rough planks and bulks of timber held back the fetid mud of the plains, which was nevertheless oozing through everywhere. These tunnels weren't built to last. They were there for a quick and definitely dirty job, and all they had to do was survive until it was done. So, the diggers had been looking for something, but weren't sure where it was until they were within, what, about twenty feet of it when they'd smelled it? Detected it? The last stretch to the well was dead straight. By then they knew where they were going. Angua crept on, almost bending double to clear the low ceiling until she gave up and went back to Wolf. The tunnel straightened out, with the occasional side passage that she ignored, although they smelt long. The vampire smell was still an annoying theme in the nasal symphony, and it came close to drowning the reek of foul water oozing from the walls. Here and there, worms had colonized the ceiling. So had bats. They stirred. And then there was another scent as she passed a tunnel opening. It was quite faint, but it was unmistakably the whiff of corruption. A fresh death. Four fresh deaths. At the end of a short side tunnel were the bodies of two, no, three dwarfs, half buried in mud. They glowed. Worms had no teeth, Carrot had told her. They waited until the prospective meal became runny of its own accord. And while they waited for the biggest stroke of luck ever to have come their way, they celebrated. Down here, in a world far away from the streets, the dwarfs would dissolve in light. Angua sniffed. Make that very fresh. They found something, said a voice behind her, and then it killed them. Angua leapt. The leap wasn't intentional. Her hind brain arranged it all by itself. The front brain, the bit that knew that sergeants should not attempt to disembowel lance constables without provocation, tried to stop the leap in mid-air, but by then simple ballistics were in charge. All she managed was a mid-air twist, and struck the soft wall with her shoulder. Wings fluttered a little way off, and there was a drawn-out organic sound, a sound that conveyed the idea that a slaughterhouse man was having some difficulty with a tricky bit of gristle. "'You know, sergeant,' said the voice of Sally, as if nothing had happened, "'you werewolves have it easy. You stay one thing, and you don't have any problems with body mass. Do you know how many bats I have to become for my body weight? More than a hundred and fifty, that's how many. And there's always one, isn't there, that gets lost or flies the wrong way?' You can't think straight unless you get your bats together, and I'm not even going to touch on the subject of reassimilation. It's like the biggest sneeze you can think of, backwards. There was no point in modesty, not down here in the dark. Angua forced herself to change back, every brain cell piling in to outvote tooth and claw. Anger helped. Why the hell are you here? she said, when she had a mouth that worked. I'm off duty, said Sally, stepping forward. I thought I'd see what I could find. She was totally naked. You couldn't have been so lucky, Angra growled. Oh, I don't have your nose, Sergeant, said Sally with a sweet smile, but I was using a hundred and fifty pretty good flying ones, and they can cover a lot of ground. I thought vampires could rematerialize their clothes, said Angua, accusingly. Otto Shriek can. A females can't, we don't know why. It's probably part of the whole underwired nightdress business. That's where you score again, of course. When you're in one hundred and fifty bat bodies, it's quite hard to remember to keep two of them carrying a pair of pants. Sally looked up at the ceiling and sighed. Look, I can see where this is going. It's going to be about Captain Carrot, isn't it? I saw the way you were smiling at him. I'm sorry. 
We can be very personable. It's a vampire thing. You were so keen to impress him, eh? And you aren't? He's the kind of man anyone would want to impress. They watched one another warily. He is mine, you know, said Angua, feeling the nascent claws strain under her fingernails. You're his, you mean, said Sally. You know it works like that. You trail after him. I'm sorry. It's a werewolf thing, Angua yelled. Hold it. Sally thrust both hands in front of her in a gesture of peace. There's something we'd better sort out before this goes any further. Yeah? Yes. We're both wearing nothing. We're standing in what, you may have noticed, is increasingly turning into mud, and we're squaring up to fight. Okay. But there's something missing, yes? And that is? A paying audience. We could make a fortune, Sally winked. Or we could do the job we came here to do. Angua forced her body to relax. She should have been saying that. She was the sergeant, wasn't she? All right, all right, she said. We're both here. Okay, let's leave it at that. Were you saying that these dwarfs were killed by some thing from the well? Possibly. But if they were, it used an axe, said Sally. Take a look. Scrape some of the mud away. It's been oozing over them since I arrived. That's probably why you missed it, she added generously. Angua hauled one dwarf out of the shining slime. I see, she said, letting the body fall back. This one hasn't been dead two days. Not much effort made to hide them, I see. Why bother? They've stopped pumping out these tunnels. The props look pretty temporary. The mud's coming back. Besides, who'd be stupid enough to come down here? A piece of wall slithered down with a sticky, organic cowpat sort of noise. Little plops and trickles filled the tunnel. Ank Morpork's underworld was stealthily reclaiming its own. Angua closed her eyes and concentrated. The slime reek, the vampire's smell, and the water that was now ankle-deep all jostled for attention, but this was competition time. She couldn't let a vampire take the lead. That would be so... traditional. There were other dwarfs, she murmured. Two, no, three, four more. I'm getting... the black oil. Distant blood, down the tunnel, and there are only three bodies here. She stood up so sharply that she nearly hit her head on the tunnel roof. Come on. It's getting a bit unsafe. We could solve this. Come on. You can't be afraid of dying. Angua plunged away. And you think spending a few thousand years buried in sludge is likely to be fun? shouted Sally. But she was talking only to dripping mud and fetid air. She hesitated a moment, groaned, and followed Angua. Further along the main tunnel there were more passages branching off. On either side rivers of mud like cool lava were already flowing out of them. Sally splashed past something that looked like a huge copper trumpet, turning gently on the current. The tunnel was better built here than the ones nearer the well, and there, at the end of it, was a pale light, and Angua crouched by one of the big round dwarf doors. Sally paid her no attention. She barely glanced at the dwarf, slumped with his back against the bottom of the door. Instead... She stared at the symbol scrawled large on the metal. It was big and crude, and might be a round staring eye with a tail, and it gleamed with the greeny-white glow of worms. He wrote it in his blood, said Angua, without looking up. They left him for dead, but he was only dying, you see. He managed to make it to here, but the killers had shut the door. He scratched at it, smell here, and there's blood under all his fingernails— then he made that sign in his own warm blood and sat here, holding the wounds shut, watching the worms turn up. I'd say he's been dead for eighteen hours or so, hm? I think we should get out of here right now, said Sally, backing away. 
Do you know what that sign means? I know it's a mine sign, that's all. Do you know what it means? No, but I know it's one of the really bad ones. It's not good seeing it here. What are you doing with that body? Sally backed away further. Trying to find out who he was, said Angua, searching the dwarf's clothing. It's the sort of thing we do in the watch. We don't stand around getting worried about drawings on the wall. What's the problem? Right now, said the vampire, he's oozing a bit. If I can stand it, so can you.'